You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm excited. I'm excited because we have Antoine Wilson to talk about his new book, Mouth to Mouth. Antoine Wilson is the author of the novels Panorama City and The Interloper. His work has appeared in the Paris Review, Story Quarterly, Best New American Voices, and the Los Angeles Times, among other publications, and he is a contributing editor of A Public Space. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a recipient of the Carol, Carol Hoke Smith Fiction Fellowship from the University of Wisconsin. He lives in Los Angeles. Antoine, welcome. Hi, Lance. Thank you. Did I pronounce that fellowship name right? Yes. Carol. Yes. Perfect. Perfect win for me. Uh, yeah. um, how are you doing today? I'm I'm great. How are you? I'm good. You know, staying warm in this weird LA cold front that we're having. I know. Um, just well, I was can... just I was I got waylaid in New York recently because of an mm. actual blizzard. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I was just looking out the window of my hotel and the the, <laughs> the snow was going by sideways. Um, oh, wow. But it's but you know you 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 bundle up and you know what to expect when you go yeah. outside. This has been weird here. It's it's I'm not prepared for it here. Um, yeah. What's a blizzard like? I forgot those days. Uh blizzards yeah i know right <laughs> i was just i um my friend and his partner are going up to the mountains to see some snow and i'm just like oh wow yeah snow i forgot it's that time of the year where yeah. snow happens i do i do like it though when you go outside and it's like 20 you know yeah. but you're prepared you're bundled but you yeah. just feel that bracing like zzz. we should okay. do this whole podcast about the weather about the weather i mean people in. tuned I mean... in to hear about books and it's just <laughs> us talking about the weather about the... i mean i feel like it'd be a you know a good change of pace you know yeah would... have you like... have you ever seen a water spout <laughs> no i <laughs> i please please tell me so i saw one uh i was a kid mm. and i was in bermuda and there was this squall coming through and a water spout is just like a little cyclone, you know, like yeah. a tornado, but it is yeah. on the water. So this thing was just out on the, oh, in the sure. Hamilton Sound or whatever. And it was just this yeah. tornado on the water and it sucks water up into it. And then it oh, like shoot. springs out of the top, like a sprinkler. Oh my God. Where is beautiful. Yeah. Was it like close enough that you were like felt the effects of it or is it just like way out? No, it was pretty close, but I didn't feel the effects of it. And I also figured it, I mean, I don't know, I was a kid, but I figured it, we were in no danger because it's, for some reason, I felt like, you know, a tornado couldn't possibly go from the water to the land. Yeah, But I think I mean, that's inaccurate. I think they just come ripping right through no matter what's under them. I feel like, I mean, it's probably more dangerous, but a water tornado, something about that sounds cool. I feel like yeah. that's, I mean, that's the natural sequel of the Twister movie franchise. Uh, Waterworld meets Twister. (laughs) I Hollywood, we're ready. Like, get us in a room. We can pitch it. Uh, (laughs) Um, you know, even though I I could talk about this all day, I'm excited to. Um, (laughs) I feel you have a reading that you would like to share from us. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, 
so this novel is called Mouth to Mouth. And um, essentially um, what happens is this is a, uh, there's an unnamed narrator. He's on his way. He's a, he's a sort of schlubby writer. He's on his way to Berlin to try to capitalize on uh, a magazine calling him a cult writer over there. And while he's waiting at JFK on a, on a flight delay, he bumps into somebody that he knew in college almost two decades earlier. And this guy, Jeff Cook, is now a famous uh, or very successful art dealer. And Jeff Cook invites our narrator up to the first class lounge and tells him the sort of story of his rise in the uh, since college in the art world. And that story begins with Jeff saving somebody um, from drowning on the beach in Santa Monica. So this is uh, Jeff and he's um, just a little bit out of college. He's been broken up with, he's heartbroken. He's at the beach at, at sort of pre-dawn at dawn. And um, he sees this guy, uh, one, one arm sort of goes up as this guy's swimming and then he's just floating there. So he's got to decide what to do. So here's Jeff on the beach. He hadn't yet faced a moment like this in his life one in which he knew with certainty that the crisis at hand was his alone to deal with, one during which he wished for the intercession of the God he didn't believe in, or anyone who might know what to do, or even someone as clueless and panicked as himself who could, by their presence, share the burden. It was one of those crucial moments, one which, when reflected on, wouldn't be laughed off, but would send a chill up his spine, because even if he felt that he had no choice, that anyone would have done what he did in that situation, he would have to acknowledge that he was being tested. Because in truth, he could have given up, could have despaired, could have walked away, could have pretended he hadn't seen what he'd seen, could have subtracted himself from the scenario, told himself that he wasn't even there, that he'd left a moment too early or arrived a moment too late that the predicament had not in fact fallen in his lap, but only grazed him as it passed undisturbed and unaddressed, left to unfold by itself as nature might have intended. I pointed out that one's interceding or not could equally represent fate, that letting nature take its course could include any number of interventions since we ourselves were inseparable from nature. He considered this for a moment, seemed about to reply and sipped his beer instead. The water was so cold, he continued, after he'd polished off the beer and fetched another, that it took his breath away. He felt like he was unable to get enough air into his lungs. Nevertheless, he made for the body, stomping through the shallows in his underwear and t-shirt and then swimming, thinking that the man was probably okay, that he was being foolish, that the man would pop his head up at any moment and bring an end to what forever would become an embarrassing story about Jeff's tendency to jump to conclusions to act before considering consequences. These thoughts alternated round Robin with others equally powerful and clear that this man was dead and had been dead a long time and was only drifting to shore. But hadn't he seen an arm slap the water? The cold bit into his hands and feet and though he swam with his head up, he tasted seawater with every stroke. When he reached the body, he hesitated to touch it. What if it sprang to life and dragged him down with the last of his ener its energy as drowning people were said to do? He took ho hold of his shoulder and tried to flip the man onto his back, but without being able to touch the bottom, he couldn't get the leverage he needed. He grabbed the man's hand and towed him the short distance to shore, swimming an awkward one-armed breaststroke, scanning the beach for anyone he could call on for help. 
At the inshore ditch, he went underwater and shoved the body from below, using a ripple of swell to propel it onto the sand. It rolled, came to a rest on its back, limbs folded awkwardly as if it had fallen from a height. He stood before it, a middle-aged man in a slick swimmer's wetsuit, tinted goggles, bluish skin, purple lips. He had thought of him as both a he and an it, a man and a body. But now the form on the sand had resolved into a human being, a he, definitively. No sign of breathing, and he had no idea how to take a pulse. He didn't dare remove the goggles for fear of revealing eyes wide open but unseeing. I'll stop there. I mean, I feel like that's that was a great like lead in to mm-hmm. you know the story. Thank you for sharing with us. My pleasure. No problem. So I wanted to start our conversation with um, just like the question that came to my mind first was what led to this story? What for you, what like, what was the conception of the story for you? Well, it's, it's been percolating, uh, brewing a long time. Um, The, if I were to go back, well, I've always been interested in the sort of, relationship between rescuers and people they rescue and the sort of Mm. weird ways that things can play out between people in set up in that kind of situation or thrown together in that way my father was a an orthopedic surgeon i was uh i was oh wow cool crazy i was uh i was pre-med um and i considered going to uh medical school and I was an EMT EMT in college. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I was just around that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But the Ur seed is probably, um, I was in Seattle in 1997, visiting with a couple of friends and we were down by the waterfront. I think it was Fleet Week or whatever they call it, where the Navy's Mm -hmm. there. We were wandering around and this guy was walking along, air drumming and uh, not really looking uh, where he was going. And he was basically about to step into the path of a freight train that was coming through the the area. And so I got his attention and then managed to get him to stop just in time. And so the, he's standing there and this f- full-size freight train just goes right past him. And he just looked at me like eyes wide open and was like, oh my God, you saved my life. And then he said, I'm going to buy you a big steak dinner. Yeah. And then the, then the train finished going by and he just kept air drumming down the waterfront and he never, you know, never to return. So, you know, my friends made fun of me for never getting my steak dinner um, for saving this guy's life. But that was where I started probably about 10 years ago when I was noodling with different possible ideas for what was coming next. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I was playing with, you know, I changed it to a drowning. I'm just, you know, I'm a surfer. I love the water. I'm just interested in that um, kind of, you know, that kind of environment. And um, yeah, initial drafts was, you know, this guy saves a guy and uh, he offers him a steak dinner. But then how many steak dinners is a life worth? Which, uh, you know, it wasn't a very good story, but it did, it did lead me toward what ended up being mouth to mouth. And how many steak dinners is a life worth? Now I have to, now I'm going to sit with that question. I feel like right. the answer is, you know, maybe one a day. Is that enough? Does that seem like enough? One, a, yeah. one steak dinner a day. Well, um, until you choke on it on the steak. 
Well, I mean, and then, the, then the life is given back. Or, or like, I feel like for your heart, that's not great. So maybe, you know, right. the steak dinner is not, you'll get like a, maybe a good dozen and then maybe two dozen yeah. and then it's not looking well, I, good. And I think one of the things that was going on there was I was looking at, you know, um, that that's sort of a relationship because the, the, mm -hmm. the rescuer in that first draft of things would say, mm -hmm. oh, that was great. Let's do it again next week. And he was sort of this weird spongy guy who was hanging on mm -hmm. to the guy he rescued and getting yeah. steak dinners out of him. Um, and then, then, you know, from the other side, it's a very strange thing to owe somebody your mm -hmm. life. And you kind of want to get rid of that person. You kind of, you, you appreciate them for the fact that you're still alive, but you also want to get rid of that obligation because it's an impossible obligation to erase. Well, it seems like, is it also like a reminder of like, you know, your own mortality there too? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like it's, you, you don't want to be reminded that, you know, of this not great time where you, you it almost ended. <laughs> it almost yeah. ended. Yeah. And that probably is a reminder. I mean, do you think you made um, your main character, Jeff, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Jeff, do you think you made Jeff like, a person to like in your story a person to like a hero kind of character um not necessarily i mean jeff is he's the he's the protagonist right i mean he's the guy who goes yeah. on the journey right uh right uh, uh, out of this sort of sad post-collegiate not having a clue what he's going to do and then um he has this moment that turns out to sort of be uh, like one of fate's forks, you know, this thing is what mm -hmm. sends him on, on the, the path that he'll take for the rest of his life. Um, you know, Jeff's an interesting character. He's telling the story to the narrator. And so he's painting a self portrait uh, mm -hmm. that is fairly self justifying. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the questions of the novel is how much of that is conscious? How much is he consciously sort of retelling his story rewriting his story and how much mm. of it is just his reluctance to acknowledge um his darker side his ambition his privilege all the things that led him to where he is right um yeah so i you know i mean i think jeff jeff on balance you know i mean he saved somebody's life but the guy who saves is kind of a jerk. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's part of the moral calculation of the book, sort of whether Jeff's like a good guy. No, I mean, it, his character reminds me of like, you know, this protagonist, this, as you said, this like privileged um, kind of like person looking for like uh, the next, their, their next step in their path. Mm -hmm. um, it reminded me of like, you know, uh, the protagonist and, uh, Townsend Mr. Ripley or uh, mm -hmm. Catch Me If You Can you know that like that like that like privileged wh white guy who's from like a um, who's like trying to figure out where he's what's next for him but he's not thinking about you know others around him or the consequences yeah. of it either yeah and, and as you know Ripley I've only seen I saw Purple Noon uh Mm -hmm. I didn't see the movie or the the, the Matt Damon one, and I didn't read the book. But from what I understand, Ripley's a bit more of a sociopath. Um, you know, I mean, he's just calculating. Catch me right. if you, you can. I think 
he's you know just a little bit more of a con but right. jeff i mean jeff the thing is you can read jeff as a sociopath you can read this book in in that way and it totally works mm -hmm. I've, I've left it open uh an open sort of question as to who jeff is at his core but i i tend to think of him as um someone who's almost unintentionally uh participating in a con you know of who he is uh so mm -hmm sort of on that line of 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 how much is he aware of participating in 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 his own sort of uh, self-fashioning and right. and and moral you know quite morally questionable moves and like i mean it it also feels like you know something anyone could experience at any time you know you mm -hmm. that that like chance that lightning striking and you know taking it to taking advantage of it and that kind of feels relatable because you know i feel like almost everyone has a moment whether not maybe to this uh to this level but everyone has an experience where one once in their life maybe where like you know something they didn't expect to happen happens and do they take that opportunity to like cash in on it to make yeah. it to take it what they should and sometimes you don't not everyone does because of maybe ex certain reasons who they are but like you know the fantasy of what could be that's what i feel like the character of jeff you know takes he takes that chance he says he does i think yeah. if it happened to me i would be reluctant to take the chance because of that i just feel like that life-saving aspect of it is so yeah something that i'd want to just be free from it's too entangled with, with somebody who i you know somebody who i don't yeah. know yeah right but but i mean part of the sort of spine of you know jeff's entering the art world comes from my own experience post ucla the first mm -hmm. job that i had was working for a fine art appraiser and mm -hmm. um i got that in beverly hills and i got that job off the job board you know the mm -hmm. the index cards at the, yeah. the job office at UCLA and I and I I went for the job because it was a fine art and rare book appraiser and I wanted to write mm -hmm. books and I'm just it was just enough of a doofus to like not go get an internship at a magazine or even work in a bookstore right like this <laughs> this job like had nothing to do with writing books um and it, maybe five percent of the work was even appraising books but mm -hmm. it getting that job and and working there and sort of sticking with it is how i learned basically everything i know about contemporary post-war art and i i gained a real appreciation for it even as i also looked at everything with a price tag attached which felt very strange that mixture of commerce and and um real appreciation but yeah you know that's one of the forks for me right was getting that job it's not a dramatic it's not an ocean rescue and mm -hmm. I didn't become a fine art appraiser. If I had, I could look back and say that was the moment, you know. Yeah. But it's a it's a fairly serendipitous type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I could have just as easily gotten a job working somewhere else that would have resulted in a different novel thirty, you know, <laughs> almost thirty years later, twenty five years later, or whatever it is, right? right. Um, so that's what I think of when I think of like fate's forks. Like I think of fate as sort of the way that we repackage our 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 serendipity mm -hmm. you know from the past yeah. the way that we create the narrative of our own lives but in with this novel do you think that there is a sort of um 
what's the word I'm looking for? There's some sort of like mixture of fate and, you know, fate and seizing opportunity. There's a better word for that that I can't think of. But yeah, seizing the opportunity and making, you know, yeah, squeezing as much out of it as you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it feels like a teacher once told me, like, you have to, like, lightning does strike, but the best thing to do is, like, put down as many lightning rods as possible. So you get, like, the perfect right. thing. And that's what this kind of feels like. Uh, lightning rod a person yeah a person who lightning did strike for him like this moment but he like was like okay but i'm going to take it take, and like yeah it it's interesting because from his perspective we're not seeing it from the person who's traumatized perspective mm-hmm. um we're seeing it from the person who saved that life who you know and so how do you think the how was it writing a character who's you know responding to trauma from that side of it do you mean uh francis the guy who's james oh jeff yeah yeah jeff Jeff is trauma jeff jeff is weirdly traumatized by the saving right because it it, it, he feels like he's got a gun to his head you know essentially Mm -hmm. like he's got to save this guy uh if he's moral at all and then and then a guy goes you know that after he's resuscitated him, he goes off in the ambulance and Jeff's just left with a wool blanket on the beach. Yeah. And yeah. And so he's got to process this, all this stuff and he doesn't quite know how, but um, yeah, the, the, there is something to Jeff where he um, doesn't sort of want to admit his own canniness and his own ambition uh, along the way in terms of all the opportunities that he does seize and um, even sort of mild spoiler when he he's dating Chloe, who you know is the uh, Francis Arsenault, the art gallery uh, owner's daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, he he like makes sure that you know, no, no, no. Like I really like this girl before I found out who she was. You know, and it's like mm-hmm. it's like all this stuff just sort of fell into my lap. You know, as yeah. I went along, and it's like all about him being or trying to present himself as like a very like a very good very lucky kind of guy right which is you know a narrative that that is suspect to say the least yeah yeah Yeah. and i mean the morality of it too uh can we talk about how like you know is it a moral is what he did you know moral ethically like like is is he taking advantage of of the traumatic situation as we said is that moral is that ethically sound is that because for when i think about it, i'm like he's not he's not doing he did a good thing shouldn't he be rewarded for the good thing he did but also mm-hmm. is he taking advantage of a situation that he is really shouldn't be a part of like you know he yeah he he didn't like he he yeah it's 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 a tricky situation there yeah especially because of the way he tells it right the way he tells right. it is oh the you know i just wanted to find out who i saved right like right. I, I wasn't going to him to say i saved your life give me a reward right. um but then and then there was a help wanted sign so i was like okay well why not you know and right but it's you know it, but as the narrator says at one point like when he finally has a chance to I think it's when he goes to the restroom and actually has a chance to stop and think about the story he's hearing. He's like, this could just very easily be described as stalking. 
somebody yeah. like if you take it you know you take these these sort of beats these story beats um right. so yeah and jeff you know jeff there's a moment where jeff feels like uh i won't spoil it but he does feel like wait a second maybe i am taking my reward and i'm not aware of it and mm -hmm. it really just messes with his head um i mean yeah. and yet and yet the you know that he might he might have had that one moment of being actually right you know yeah that's what he's doing the whole time I, you know part of and yet i i don't like to think of him as a sort of sociopath or a con man because mm -hmm. his condition uh to me is meant to be the human condition you know just our natural uh inability to plumb our own motives uh a lot of the time anyway uh we we have this wonderful um function in our brains called the left brain interpreter and it's mm -hmm. it, you know it's it creates language to explain what we're doing and what we've done and it mm -hmm. doesn't care about truth it mm -hmm. it only cares about plausibility right? right so there's there was um i think in the 70s there were these split brain experiments where people mm -hmm. had uh epilepsy and they had their corpus callosum cut which is the thing that connects the left brain and the right brain mm -hmm. and they've did all these great split brain experiments and one of them in one of them, they'd show just the right side of the brain. Basically, they divide the visual field, so only one mm -hmm. side sees the same thing. They show the um, the right side of the brain the word "walk," and the right side of the brain can can read that command, right. but can't speak. It has really no no voice. So that's over on the left side. So these people would read "walk" on the right side of the brain, then they get up from the table and, mm -hmm. and like they're going to go walk, and the the uh, scientist says. Where are you going? You know, why did you get up to walk? And they said, Oh, I just wanted to go grab a Coke. You know? And it's yeah. like, well, we know the reason that they got up is not because they wanted to go get a Coke. That's left brain interpreter querying the brain. Like, what why did we why did we get up? Okay, what about mm. this? You know? So right. it's a tiny little, I mean, that's what where to me, that's at the core of like why to write an unreliable narrator. My, mm -hmm. my first book had an unreliable narrator. I love Nabokov's unreliable narrators. Uh, Remains of the Day is a great Ishiguro, yeah. unreliable narrator. People, it's, you know, our inability to know ourselves is to me like a constant theme. And so Jeff is enacting mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And, and I think, you know, doing it in a way that's kind of entertaining for the reader also. I mean, I feel, I feel like, the unreliable narratives narrator is always fun and like so many multiple genres too that like you can for an unreliable narrator narrator because like it's a part of the mystery too right it's a part mm -hmm. of the it's it's a part of the fun to be like is this how do I interpret what this other person's telling me versus yeah. you know how I how it could be like changed and misleading and all yeah. making them look better it creates even more space for the reader to co-create the book right. like to co you know because anytime you're reading you're you're you know you're meeting that book halfway that text yeah. halfway with your imagination so so the unreliable narrator you know sort of makes explicit that difference right because there's the text right. in front of you and you're also like how do i interpret this text knowing that that it's full of holes right and i mean I love I I have a good time with it. I have a good time reading it, watching it. It's always fun too. I always yeah. think whenever I think of like unreliable narrator in film, the usual suspects is just, I mean, oh yeah. 
Of course. Sadly, Talk about that's yeah. the mic drop of an ending, also, I right? Mean, yeah. Like, wow. It that I the unreliable narrator is what makes that story just so yeah. elevates it. It was, you know. Yeah. No, there is some good ones. Um and on that too, can we talk about Francis, the the saved, the you mm-hmm. know, the person who, you know, maybe owes something to um to Jeff. Jeff. How was it writing that character? Because that's a character, you know, kind of, I mean, a real person, but also fictionalized by Jeff's narration of it, right? Right, right. Right. So yeah, we're seeing yeah, everything we get of the story comes through Jeff. So mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, there are some, I guess, conventions in in that world of mm-hmm. a, a first person narrator where, for instance, dialogue tends to be rendered faithfully. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 assume that the person telling the story is not making up the direct dialogue. Uh, yeah. So that, you know, that so Francis does shine through in, in more ways than sort of filtered through Jeff. But Francis, you know, part of the, the sort of Francis question is like, what if you save somebody's life and they're kind of an asshole, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? And, but he's, He's also sort of, uh, I don't know, semi-malignant, uh, but highly functional narcissist. You know, we know yeah. that these guys, these guys are everywhere in um, in leadership, yeah. especially in creative fields. Um, yeah, I was like, but, they're, they're usually in charge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In charge. And a lot of them, you know, they, we see a lot of them in Hollywood, obviously, but but in the in the art world, which is a place where value is so subjective and so subject to manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes these big personalities, if they're able to, um, uh, you know, if they're canny enough and, and they're smart enough, they're able to, to rise to the top and really sort of control and manipulate things. And that's, that's where Francis yeah. is, mm-hmm. is coming from. And Jeff, you know, Jeff becomes uh, an art dealer in the end, a very successful art dealer. So mm-hmm. there's a question. I don't think he becomes Francis, but there, there's to a certain extent, he inherits um, some of those tendencies probably. Uh, um, yeah, there, like, oh, sorry, go and, on. Oh yeah, I, I was just gonna say, there's something like uh, sort of, you know, almost animalistic about Francis, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he is the guy who goes out pre-dawn and does, you know, does an ocean swim. You know, the, the, the reason that he's being saved in the first place, um, he is yeah. sort of like one of those, those sharks that can't stop moving forward or they die. It, I mean, from that aspect, is he, <laughs> this might be a messed up thing to ask, mm. like, is his death kind of a net or not death the the accident the trauma the maybe a close to death moment mm-hmm. kind of part of his character kind of like inevitable thing from like his own personality of like uh-huh. being so so like taking yeah <laughs> taking as big a bite of the apple as he can kind of exactly thing, like out of life yeah i mean i guess I don't know. There's, they're just, there are people like that and they, they fascinate me. Um, you know, I would say, yeah, his, there's some, to some degree, I, 
you could say his excesses uh, led to that heart issue in you know in the ocean. Um, but just in general, those kind of people, aside from the toxic workplace vibe, toxic yeah. relationship vibe, some of those people really fascinate me. You know, people who have this sort of appetite for lust for life. You know, this this they just want to get as much uh, as possible out of life while they're here. Um, and you know, screw everybody else. Yeah, uh, and of course, and it's just it's just an interesting um, variation of Homo sapiens, right? Yeah, it's a type. It's not not us, the book people. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're all we're all fine. We're we're we have no problems, right? We just want to read all the books. Just want to read all the books, and yeah. you know, sometimes right, but like sometimes, occasionally, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, um, the let's first let's talk about the narrator the narrator like why mm. why make the book from a person who you know isn't he isn't critical to the story when you could have made it jeff's just jeff you know what i yeah. mean just yeah. jeff telling it but you have this person who you know is kind of not not a fan of jeff already right right like yeah. be the one to like you know hear this story well i you know it's an interesting question I, I as i was working on this book i was working on another book at the same time and i was going back and forth and serially abandoning one for the other and not just like i think i'll work on this now but like screw this this is done yeah. this doesn't work i'm never going back to it i'm gonna drive mm -hmm. my wife insane right she's just like <laughs> are you serious again um <laughs> And I couldn't figure out how to make this one work. And it was just Jeff telling his story, mm -hmm. um, all first person. And mm -hmm. there was just something about his voice being up in the face of, you know, up in your face that I didn't like for some reason. My previous novel, Panorama City, uh, mm -hmm. has a, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the conceit of it is that, that all of it is recorded onto cassette tapes. So it's like literally mm -hmm. the voice of this, of this narrator. Um, and it's very um, sort of stylized voice and it's really in your face. And there was something about Jeff's story that I, I just ended up feeling like it worked better at a remove. Um, and I just experimented with putting, you know, this, this ancient idea that I had about hearing a, num a name over the PA from somebody from your past, which I found recently discovered was in a text file from like 2001. Mm -hmm. um it, but that i and, and i just thought let me put a narrator in between jeff and the reader and see what happens um and it ended up creating a space where the book also becomes about storytelling uh in a way that i don't think it would have been if it was just jeff then it'd be more sort of just unreliable narrator stuff maybe i'm not sure but um and at times that that narrator is kind of a stand-in for the reader like a little bit of a clue on on how you should be interpreting or how you might interpret or whether you're justified in questioning Jeff's story along the way. Um, and in a, it's it, to me, there's a paradoxical aspect of it. It's, it's more artifice, right? This unnamed narrator in between. And I think for some people it actually turns them off, but for, for me, that extra level of artifice actually makes it feel more like it could be true. Mm -hmm. And okay. that's sort of where I'm headed in general with what I've been trying to write. I want it, want stuff to seem almost like it could be true. Uh, 
and also that it leaves enough more room for the reader to uh, exercise their imagination. That's where I am right now. See, like I in that that's interesting because I saw it as like, oh, true or false kind of doesn't really need to matter in storytelling. It's the story. Yeah. Like the narrator is not going to be affected by the story. You know, after it's just it's it's the it's the you know kind of beauty of storytelling where it's like it doesn't have to be true or truth doesn't really matter in this scenario because he's just he's listening to a story maybe for jeff it matters but like this is how jeff's telling it it's like yeah jeff's journey it's everyone's perspective of like what does truth mean to me versus you know truth to there's there's another book probably where like the narrator is stuck in an airport with francis and hearing him from you know francis's perspective too which listen if there's a sequel mouth to mouth to the mountaining or something um, hand to hand hand to hand it's a there's a big fight scene yeah it's awesome i mean it's like a mortal combat thing i think that there's a story here so i'm just saying i I think um, what i meant about like true though is is mm -hmm. the the sort of real-time stuff that happens in the lounge yeah, you know that's okay. the stuff that I just I like the texture of that feeling mm-hmm. that no we're just sitting in this static space and having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels like something I I don't know felt right to me and um, yeah. but then you know on the other hand my first novel was a document my second novel was cassette tapes and this mm-hmm. novel is you know a, a, as told to story so maybe I just can't handle straight up plain <laughs> conventional narration. <laughs> I'm I mean, stuck in like the 1800s trying to get some kind of verisimilitude out of this was found in a box in an attic, you know, <laughs> you, were, you were a traveling bard in your last life. You were yeah. just you were just out there with the with the I don't know what was an old time a mandolin. No, uh, some yeah, old time had mandolins or maybe yeah. I had a, a bazooki in Greece. And you were just like telling stories to people out there and that's coming through in this, you know, that's, and that's, and that's storytelling. That's, that's the beauty of storytelling. No, there's so many, I mean, and yeah, it, 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 it makes, I feel like it gives a beauty in a way of saying this story, it's about listening to the story. It's not about trying to find Mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. It's about listening to a story. And I think that, you know, gives the reader freedom in a way yeah freedom yep. freedom from the shackles of truth the shackles of fact versus fiction yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. no i i mean i've and i think you handle that in a great way with you know the character of jeff whether you like him or not you're listening to the story yeah uh, whether our narrator likes him or not right he, and i mean do you see Would you put yourself in the persona of Jeff or the narrator? I know you said that you were in a situation where you had to be the Jeff, but do you think that like you were also, you know, becoming the narrator in that way too, a person who's listening to a story like this? Um, Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, a lot of people have asked me like, is there, have you ever ever been sort of buttonholed like this and had somebody tell you this, a story like this? And I don't think I have, but we can all identify with some aspect of it, you know, at a party Mm -hmm. where somebody's just going off and you're like, this, this is, this is off. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I mean, identify with the narrator's kind of, uh, (laughs) he's, he's a, you know, he's a writer looking to 
to boost his career a bit by because he got some nice notices in in Germany. He's taking a break from carpool and groceries and stuff like that. Uh, that part I identify with 100%. Not being in the first class lounge and wanting to be in it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Check. However, the narrator <laughs> is uh, not able to sleep on airplanes, and I am, so it's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I so yeah, I mean, identify with the narrator, and I identify with Jeff. The the mm-hmm. sort of a, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the Jeff stuff um, I approached uh, writing it, I don't know, in a spirit of sincerity to some degree. Mm-hmm. So, no. yeah. And I mean, I feel like that from all of these aspects, yeah, that comes through that mm-hmm. and, uh, readers, I'm guessing readers will feel that while reading this, while reading your book. Um, well, sadly, we're out of time. But um, before we go, um, is there anything you would like to say to, you know, readers, the, you're, you're a big LA writer. So, mm. you know, the LA bookstore scene, is there anything you'd like to say to them? The booksellers too? Yeah, I mean, I love that. I, I feel like we are, we, we, we had a store here called Dutton's in Brentwood that was great and is mm. gone. And so people lament um, the loss of that store and and midnight special on the third street promenade you know there's sort of like there was a period where everybody was lamenting the loss of independent bookstores because barnes and noble was taking over um but it feels like right now the independent bookstore is having the last laugh and i and i just like picture this mental archipelago from like uh pages down in manhattan beach up to diesel Mm -hmm. in brentwood over to book soup you know, and mm-hmm. then and then to Skylight and then to Romans. And mm-hmm. I just think we're so lucky to have these stores that um, that are not just bookstores and not just sort of well-curated um, collections of, you know, staff picks and stuff like that, but they do feel like community centers for people who are are, are genuinely interested in, in writing. So I don't know, I feel like it's a, it's a very good time um, mm-hmm. to, uh, for books in, Los Angeles, even if the weather is funky. <laughs> you know, the funky weather honestly brings you into bookstores more, I feel like. It makes you... That's true. That's one of the difficult things, I should say. One of the difficult things about writing in LA is mm-hmm. if you're sitting in your office and you know you got to go, you know, do three hours on your book and then you got to read something else or something. You know, you just get anybody yeah. who has to work in, in the city. You look out the window and it's and you just feel like it's beautiful out there. You know, I kind of want it to be raining so that I feel like I have to be like, I'm not wasting something by being behind my desk. Rainy days are the best in LA. I mean, what the six rainy days we get a year. Right. Um, They're, they're the best because I'm like, Oh, I don't have to go outside. Thank God. I don't have to step outside and immediately spend a thousand dollars a day or, (laughs) you know, I could stay at home and, eat that food that's rotting in my fridge i guess uh the other uh weather the other since we're doing the weather podcast the other weather related thing i would add is um that it's been great being a surfer in los angeles Mm -hmm. because you really get a sense for the seasons and there there are ways in which you can live in this city and not pay attention to the seasons at all Mm -hmm. um except for the few cold days in february Mm -hmm. um but if you surf the swell direction changes throughout the year the winds change the water temperature changes um quite a bit so uh an engagement with the ocean feels like a real engagement with uh with nature in that sense and you really get a sense of that it's not just 
72 and sunny permanently. Well, since, since I have an expert on the water here, one is, <laughs> and this is listeners, this is a special treat for you too. When is the best time where the water's not, you know, so cold, I feel like yeah, the Grim Reaper is pulling me down into the ocean. When is usually the- August? August, I think it takes a while for the for the water to warm up. Um, yeah, in the and so I don't know. I feel like August is the best time at the beach because people have also like decided, or even like mid late September. You know, after mm-hmm. uh, Labor Day, people decide to not go to the beach anymore, and it's a lot less crowded and and warmer. Uh, but just yeah, keep an eye on. Um, you know, if you get if the, any south swells coming through, they sometimes bring warmer water on the coast a little bit. And the probably the worst time is, is if it's been windy all night. That does something called upwelling and brings the water from below up. And so if it's been windy all night, it's just going to be colder. Oof, okay, good to know. Yeah. That's a yeah. tip to all of us uh, listeners, wherever you are. <laughs> if you come to LA, so God, what if we? What if this podcast caused like a huge tourism swell in August and September in LA? Oh man, I would not I, be happy. No, I blew no. it. I'm not, not going to name any spots. <laughs> We're not going to go that to you. know what? That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, keep those yeah. keep those close to the chest. Um, no, thank you so much, Antoine. This has been such a great episode. I have. This has just been a great conversation. Um, to the listeners, thank you. Go. No, it's my pleasure. No, listeners, go buy mouth to mouth on sale now at at your local independent bookstore but also skylight books you know you can go and get it at skylight mm-hmm. if you're close by um who knows you might see some signed copies around oh mm-hmm. they oh, are I, I get in the car now and then sign just, sign some stock <laughs> you're just a traveling sign you just you just show up whenever the whenever the wind calls i was i was I was at the airport. I was just touring in January. I actually yeah. stopped at the local, at the little stand at the airport and then it had my book. So I yeah. literally stopped and signed the stock at the airport. And some lady standing next to me was like, what are you doing? Oh, is that your book? And I, lit- and I literally sold two copies at the airport, hand selling my own book. So that's honestly, that's, I, that's where I am. A bookseller and a writer. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that you deserve that they should have sent you a paycheck after that like that's that's, right. that's some good book selling right there um yeah. no thank you again this has been fantastic Thanks, to our listeners you have a great beautiful rest of the day if you're in la stay warm it's warm weather's on its way i hope <laughs> but you guys have a good day and do something really nice for yourself today thank you bye Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.